But this topic today is similar or familiar to those if you've been reading along through the Daily Audio Bible, where we're deep into the book of Job. The book of Job is a real struggle sometimes to understand, and I'm going to really focus on a very small portion of it. Don't think we've gotten there yet um, for the reading if you're following along, which I encourage you to do. This is also mentioned in the book we're reading uh, through on Sunday nights for this week, so maybe this is why this is on my heart. And I also realized, I, well, I thought I had preached on this before here. I don't think I have. I've generally preached on the same topic, but used entirely different passages to do it once before, but apparently not here. So I want to introduce two legal principles to you today. Then I'm going to tell you a story, and then we're going to read Scripture. These are principles I can and do teach in my class, and I make similar but different points (laughs) in my class. Uh, The first one is called uh, privileged communications. So this is the idea that you can tell your attorney something and they're not allowed to tell anyone else, right? Especially in a court of law. Many states have this between doctors and their patients. Doctors not allowed to go in court and tell something you told them in confidence. Many states have this for clergy, and they're usually called the clergy privilege. Um, this idea that you can come and tell me something and I'm not allowed to legally go and tell on you. And many states also have what's called marital privilege. And that's the idea that um, the conversation between a husband and a wife is to remain there and can only be testified to in court when the other spouse says it's okay. Now, the whole reason for this is to build confidence, right? Uh, The law recognized that you should be allowed to come and speak to me as your pastor openly without fear of me testifying against you in court. Uh, The same is true for your attorney. The same is true for your doctor. And in many states, but not all, the same is true for your spouse. And so if I was to do something, Amy could only testify against me if I said she could. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So that's the first principle. And normally in class, we'd cover that a lot more, but we'll stop there for now. The second one is called hearsay. H-E-A-R-S-A-Y. And what this means is that information that we receive from other people that we can't adequately substantiate cannot be used in court. You could say it's gossip or rumors. And what this means is that I, we are not allowed in court to report the words of another person unless that person can be there to be able to testify one way or the other. The idea behind this is that we don't allow rumors into court, okay? Uh, I can't get up there and say, well, she said, she said in court unless she and she can come and say whether they did or didn't. And then it's up to a jury to decide the truth of those things. So let me give you an example. Uh, For those who are at home today, uh, Brother Bruce is not here. That actually plays a key into my comments. I was expecting Mike to be here, so I'll make fun of him in his absence. (laughs) So here's an example of where hearsay works, okay? Bruce, who's not here, okay, told me that he saw Mike driving very slowly in his Ranger 
down Las Casas Pike yesterday with a long line of traffic behind him. <laughs> that part's true, just so you know. <laughs> However, since the witness relies on an out-of-court statement, in other words, Bruce isn't here to tell me whether that's true or not, whether he actually saw it, I'm not allowed to present that as evidence. Because what I'm presenting is what Bruce told me that he saw. Does that make sense? So this would be what we call a rumor. Now, it's in fact true, other than the fact that I don't think Bruce saw him and I did, but you get the idea, right? Okay? So because Bruce isn't here to say yes or no, to abut, approve, append, whatever you might want to call it, we don't allow me to say what I heard from Bruce because of what he saw from someone else. This would be called hearsay, or you could just use the word gossip if you want to. Now, everybody got those so far? Okay, now let me pause there, and I want to tell you a story. You'll notice as a pastor, I don't tell a lot of stories. I, I really don't. Um, but I'd like to tell you this story, and if I've told it before. I apologize. I don't recall telling it before. I was a police officer in 2007, and about 15 minutes into the shift, which means I was still gathering stuff in the department, I got a call of um, gunshots, shots fired. That actually doesn't get most police officers very worked up because like 98% of the time it's a car backfiring or nothing to really worry about. So I leisurely begin to leave the department out the back door. I get in my car. I get about a block away and now we get two or three more phone calls. And then somewhere down that line, the third or fourth one, somebody says, there is in fact someone who's been shot. So I flip the lights and the sirens on and I take off that direction. A few others join me. As I'm getting close to the neighborhood, there's like a main road that leads into the neighborhood, I turn the lights and sirens off so not to, to alert them too much of my coming and give myself away. I squeal somewhat sideways into the neighborhood. I park the car about a block away, I grab my rifle, and I take off running. I come around behind where everyone said the commotion was, and there I find a very tragic scene I see a woman who is absolutely hysterical, screaming and crying, and I see a young man who, shall we say, has been executed. Not entirely sure what's going on, and a little concern for her safety and my safety, I immediately surmised that she hadn't done it just based on context, so I assumed someone else had. So I quickly run inside the house, finding no one there, I come back out and begin to talk with her. She's so hysterical and so distraught that I eventually had to grab her by the shoulders and say, who did this? And she just kept saying, I can't believe he did it. I can't believe he did it. So I grabbed her again. I said, who? She finally, her eyes met mine, and she said to me, my husband. He came home early. I'll let some of the adults fill in the rest. So I said, where did he go? And she said, he drove away. And she gave me his description and a car's description. Now, as soon as I heard this, what I realized is that as I was turning the lights off on my car when I was approaching the first time and pulling into this neighborhood, I saw a car matching that description with someone who kind of matched that description pulling out and taking a left. So I ran as quick as I could back to my cruiser, and while I was doing that, I radioed ahead and said, look for this car. He took a left this direction, possible suspect. 
put my rifle in the trunk and I grabbed a voice recorder. That's before we had any smartphones. And I raced back to the scene and was back within about 60 seconds and asked her again while I had my recorder going, what happened? Who did this? So she told me, told me the story very briefly. The coroner came, there was nothing that could be done. The gentleman did in fact die. We had an idea of who the suspect was. A few hours later, I arrived at his mother's house where he was at and I put handcuffs on him and I drove him to the jail. We arrived, I pulled out a piece of paper and a pen, a citation, I wrote charge one, murder. It was an awkward day. Next few days, lots of efforts to try and figure out what was going on. He refused to be interrogated, wouldn't talk to any of us, which is his constitutional right. So it would rely on evidence to prove whether or not he was a suspect. The problem was there was no physical evidence. He lived at that house, so it wasn't like we could look for fiber, fingerprints, blood, things that we might normally do. We could not find the weapon. There was no GPS phone tracking at that time. So we were stuck with relying on one witness to the murder, his wife. The problem is he refused to allow her to testify against him. Now we see where this marriage um, comes into play, marital privilege. So we were stuck with a problem. Am I legally allowed to testify that she told me that he did it when she's not allowed to get up and say whether or not that's true? And the answer is no, except for the fact that I had recorded her statements. And about eight months later, through a series of judgments, the judge finally allowed the first, I think, three minutes of that recording to be considered what's called an excited utterance, which is sometimes an exception to the hearsay law. Now, why do I tell you all this? During this time, I worked for a really good department. I had really good people who I worked with, people who wanted truth and justice, and I, I truly mean that. A lot of the stuff you see on TV I never saw in my career, and I'm very thankful for that. The prosecuting attorney had me over to his office one day and said, hey, that, uh, that car you saw leaving, was it the same car that you found him in later? I said, well, if by that you mean it was a late 90s gray Lumina? Yeah, but I don't know if it was the same car. I said, okay. When you pulled into that neighborhood, you saw the person driving the car. I said, yes, I did. I said, is that the same person you arrested? I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure enough to let my testimony and a murder charge on somebody if I wasn't sure. What do you think he wanted? Well, he wanted me to be sure, didn't he? Because then there's evidence and I can testify. But I wasn't. This is the part where I tell my students, you'd better be sure or you better not say a thing. So I was willing for justice to be done to potentially let him go free 
rather than pin a homicide charge on the wrong man. Are you with me? So it really came down to that recording, that tape that we had, and whether or not that could be used. Ultimately, it was used, and he was sentenced to about 30 years. Now, the reason I tell this is to set the stage for what I'm about to read to you, because I want you to understand the concept of hearsay. And hearsay is something that we hear someone else say that we didn't necessarily hear ourselves. And I want you to think for a few minutes, what do you know about God? And what is hearsay about him? What have you heard someone else say about God that you accept as truth? What have you actually experienced with God? Because there is a very important difference, and it is more than just a legal difference. We must experience God one-on-one personally and not depend on what someone else has said about someone else about their experience with the Lord. Now, we can use those things from time to time to be helpful for us. It certainly was helpful for her to tell me who did it so that we could try and prove it was him. It's certainly helpful for you to come and to hear me preach about my experiences with God, but that is not the same as you having experiences with God. Otherwise, we're just spreading gossip. Does that make sense? This is vitally important, and it's something that makes our faith different from almost any other faith, that God is a personal God who wants to know us, who wants to be known by us. It's a two-way street. We've talked about this the last two Sunday evenings. God wants to personally know us, to talk with us, to do things with us and for us, and for us to do things for Him and with Him. But too many times and in too many places, all we do is rely on what ultimately in a court of law would be considered gossip, listening to what someone else said about their experience with God and somehow thinking that's enough. And we need to go straight to the source. We need to go straight to the one who is willing, who in fact died so that he could have a relationship with us. Not so that we could hear about, hear about, hear about a story and question whether it's true, but we could actually have a real relationship with him. So we talk about Job. And I hope this all makes sense in a minute. We talk about Job. Many of you probably know the story of Job. Job Job was a a righteous man, it says. And he was put under a great amount of stress and trial. Everything almost was taken away from him. Most of his possessions, his children, his status, his image, everything was tarnished. And his friends come to console him and they begin to have a debate about whether he's guilty of some sin or is responsible for this. But Job says he wants to confront God personally. He wants to speak to God personally. In Job 13 and 3, he says, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. You ever wanted to argue your case with God? Now, let's be honest. I bet some of us have thought that from time to time, haven't we? But when we really step back, when we're not in a moment of crisis, and we think about the idea that somehow I'm going to argue my case with God, it seems a little foolish, doesn't it? But I bet in the midst of trials and times, we ourselves have also said that from time to time. 
And Job says that I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue my case with God. And so this debate rages through the book of Job between Job claiming he's righteous and his friends who only the only frame of reference they have is this. And we were talking about reframe the book. So tie this in. The only frame of reference they have is this. God punishes those who do wrong. Job is being punished. Therefore, Job must be doing something wrong. That's their view. Job's trying to argue in the opposite. So that's not the case. That's not the box he has God inside of. And this debate rages on for chapters upon chapters. Then we see something happen in Job 31. Job 31 and 40, the very last words. The words of Job are ended. He finally, out of exhaustion, is making his case, sees he's getting nowhere, and he just stops talking. It's done. Made my case. And then what we see is the next few chapters where their friends continue to rebut, especially the fourth friend who shows up, the young one who is uh, there. And then we see something very important happen. God shows up. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and God speaks directly to Job for several chapters. Now again, let's picture this. Job is a good man, a righteous man. The scripture tells us that. He uh, is tempted and tried. Almost everything he has in his life is taken away from him, just this close to death. He refuses to curse God and die, which was the advice of his wife. His friends come and tell him, you must have done something wrong. He maintains his innocence and argues and says, I want to speak to God to make my case. And can you imagine saying that? And then however long between all of a sudden God actually shows up and says, okay, here I am. So God enters the scene and begins to tell Job and the friends about life. It's a beautiful passage. I'm not going to read it today, but you should read this sometime. And he basically says, where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I put the stars in their place? Where were you when I did anything? And the answer is, Job is completely and utterly insignificant in the face of an almighty God, as are we. And God, you could say, rightfully puts Job in his place. Chapters 38 through 41, he tells of his greatness and his power. We see in verse, I'm sorry, in chapter 40, Job says this. 40 verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand in my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I'll just paraphrase this in modern language. Job says, mercy. Okay, you win, right? Even though I thought I was innocent, the reality is I don't know anything, and I bow before you and you win. And we see this stature of heart come into play in chapter 42. And this is where I really want to focus today. 
Chapter 42, we see that Job finally confesses and repents. That's the title, and the titles in these chapters are in there by man, but it's a good summary of this chapter. Verse 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides the counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in ashes and dust and ashes. So Job confesses here before the Lord and tells us some very important things. I have uttered what I did not understand. You ever done that? Here's a serious, serious problem within many of our, I'm going to say quote here, churches today. And believe me, this is not about building myself up. We have men, no, we have boys, and in some case, girls, unbelievably, who say that they know God, who stand in a position of this, of authority, and try to tell you about something that they don't know anything about. And we look around and we wonder why our churches are falling apart, why people are leaving in droves, and it's because there is no one who stands in the pulpit who has actually experienced the face of God to tell the truth and proclaim it as God orders them to do. It is a serious, serious problem. I have uttered what I did not understand. Week after week, people get into this pulpit, not this one physically, but in other pulpits around the country and utter things they have no earthly idea what they are talking about because they have never met God. It is a tragedy, it is a travesty, and it is sending people to hell. And they will be held responsible for the words that they utter out of their mouth. I am held responsible for the things that I tell you. You know that, right? The Bible tells me that. It's a weight, it is a burden, it is a calling that God has placed on my life, and He will measure me by how well I perform. And if I step up here and tell you about something that I don't know anything about... I had better sit down and shut my mouth, lest I be judged harshly for having led you astray. This is a serious problem that we have. And Job is saying, look, I've uttered what I didn't understand. What did he not understand? Things that are too wonderful for him and things that he didn't know. Wow. Too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. Now, that might be really easy to draw some conclusions and start picking out people that you might think of and say, you don't know what you're talking about. It might even be able to start putting Job down a notch or two. But wait a second. Turn back with me to the very first chapter of Job. Let's just, let's just make sure we get something straight here. Job 1 and 8. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away evil. There was no one else on earth like Job in chapter 1. And somehow, in chapter 42, Job says, I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't have a clue what I was talking about. I'd never truly knew you. I'd never actually seen you, but I get it now. Brothers and sisters, understand, what changed is Job's realization of who God is. What changed is that Job now is in a communication and a relationship with God that he'd never quite been in before, even though he was righteous, even though he was doing the right thing, even though he hated the things that were evil, he now understands God at a level he never has before because he has been with God. Have you been with God? And don't misunderstand me. I don't think this means that Job was saved in between uh, chapter 40 and chapter 42. What I think it means is that Job knew the Lord as in he loved him and tried to do the right thing. Putting off the evil, trying to do the good thing. It said he would even make sacrifices on behalf of his children just in case that they sinned. This man, the Bible tells us, there was no one else like him. Yet at some point in his life, through all the trial and the turmoil, he had an experience with God that changed him again. To the point that he said, I had no idea what I was talking about. Here's the point. You can be saved... You can be sealed for the day of redemption. The Lord can apply His Son's blood to you. And you can go to heaven and never have walked on this earth and known God the way God desires to be known. And so it is something that we should actually pursue. We should strive to be like Job. And if it takes the tragedy that Job experienced, it's worth it. Did you hear me? Did you like it? Of course not. No one wants to go through what Job went to, but the outcome is far better than having never experienced it at all because now he knows God. And we should strive for the same thing. I asked a brother this recently about a church. I said, what's, what's the purpose of this church? And I said as much, and he kind of looked at me funny, and then I had to kind of pause and reflect about here, too, when I said it. So what's the purpose? What if the purpose of a congregation meant the congregation had to do something it didn't want to do? What if the purpose of the church, of the body of Christ, locally living in our communities, meant that we, as a body of local Christians, had to do something we didn't want to do? Give up a certain amount of money. Or perhaps destroy the sacred idol of our church buildings. Now, I'm not running out and suggesting nobody get upset. Nobody call me names. You can call me tonight if you want to. I'm not suggesting we tear down the church building. But here's my honest question. Would you do it if that's what God wanted you to do? Or do you love a building more than him? Would you go somewhere you didn't want to go if it's what God wanted 
or would you stay? These are serious questions. Job didn't have a choice. It just happened to him. But here's the thing. I think we are given choices all the time, and we either don't recognize them or we refuse to do what God is trying to get us to do, and we miss the relationship that he's dying to give us because we refuse to give up whatever it is or we refuse to obey the way that he wants us to. I'm sure Job thought he knew God. I'm sure he thought he understood God. In fact, he argues eloquently for chapters about that. That's why he was willing to say, I'll argue with God. But he was wrong. He didn't know in the way God wanted to be known. I have a quote here from a commentary. And I'm going to read it to you because it supports what I believe. And I know I'm cherry-picking quotes here. But I want you to understand that when I tell you something, it's not entirely just me who's telling you this. So Matthew Henry, in his commentary about this section, says this, In true repentance, there must not only be conviction of sin, but contrition and godly sorrow for it according to God. Now, I've preached on this before. You can feel bad about getting caught. That's not the same thing. Job didn't just feel bad that he was wrong. He was cut low, realizing that he was completely mistaken. He was convicted of the thing that he had done wrong, and he was broken in a godly way, in a sorrowful way for those things. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 says, Yet I am glad now, not because you were hurt and made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you felt grief such as God meant you to feel, so that you might not suffer loss in anything on our account. We can see here that Job is convicted, and as we tend to say today, broken, and there was repentance. It takes all three of those things. We can be convicted. We can know we've done wrong. We might even be broken over it, But if we're not really willing to repent, we've done exactly nothing. Or if we repent without brokenness and without conviction, we've also done exactly nothing. Now, again, I'm not conflating here that Job was lost or saved, but I'm going to make an application just briefly to salvation because it just screams out in this passage. When you come before God, if you are not convicted of your sins utterly broken over them and truly repentive of them, you will never receive salvation. You will never receive forgiveness. And many people for years have tried and tried and tried to be saved, but they are either not convicted of their sins, they truly just don't really care, or they're not really sorrowful in a uh, contrite, repentant sort of way. We must seek God on His terms, not mine. God is outside of me. God is better than me. He is bigger than me. And when he tells me what he accepts, when I'm convicted of sin, when I'm broken over, and when I'm repentive, he will be there to lift me up when I need it. And when I try not to, it doesn't work. And you'll see here in verse 6, it jumps. Let me jump and I'll go back up. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
It's the way the culture showed their true repentance. If you try to seek God in a proud way, you're not going to find him. If you try to seek God and don't repent when he shows you you're wrong, he's not going to commune with you. We must be like Job and seek him in this way. In verse 5, jumping back up one, it says, I heard of you in the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Let me unpack this for just a minute. Job didn't actually see God. God spoke to him in a whirlwind. I don't really know what that means. I don't really understand it. His friends heard it because God talks to them too. So when he says he sees God, when he had heard about him before, but now he sees him, what is he actually talking about? I think Job is known as in a knowledge about somebody, again, hearsay, for a very long time. He knew all about him, but he didn't actually know him at this level. He was probably taught about God. He'd heard all kinds of things about God. He'd built, as we've talked about on Sunday nights, his little box of who God is and how he operates based on what he'd heard from someone else. Remember the hearsay. And when confronted with God in a face-to-face situation, in a presence-to-presence situation, he says, everything I thought I knew, I didn't know. Everything I'd been told doesn't compare to what I'm experiencing. And he fell on his face in ashes and dust in front of God. I've heard of you in the hearing of the ear. I've heard about you. But now my eyes see you. This is a spiritual knowledge. This is a change of who Job is and how he relates to God. Let me read one more time of Matthew Henry. I really like this passage. Listen closely. This is what he says about verse 5. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear many a time from my teachers when I was young. From my friends now of late... I have known something of thy greatness and power and sovereign dominion, and yet was not brought by what I heard to submit myself to thee as I ought. The notions I had of these things served me only to talk of and had not a due influence upon my mind. But now thou hast in, by immediate revelation discovered thyself or shown thyself to me in thy glorious majesty. Now my eyes see thee. Now I feel the power of the truce, which before I had only a notion of. And therefore now I repent and say I have been foolish. Ever met God that way? I truly hope that at some level, when you were saved, you had an experience like this, right? Something changed inside of you and you realized, oh my God, and I'm not using that term pejoratively, oh my God, what is this? Who am I? I hope that your salvation testimony has something like that, but I equally hope that you 
if you have any time since you've been saved, have experienced something like this before, where God has revealed himself to you spiritually, and you have stood in front of him, fallen to your knees, and once more said, Oh my God, I have gotten it wrong. I need to do this. I need the immediate revelation of who you are in my life. I need to feel the power of you in my life. I need to know what I am to do. I need to see you for who you are. I don't need to listen to what someone else says about you. I desperately want to know you and to experience you. Job experienced God's presence. And the implication was that Job now sees spiritually what he had been taking on hearsay before God. He can now prove this. He has seen in a literal sense at the beginning of God's speech, but now he has seen spiritually. And that's really the question that we have today. Are you just relying on what other people have said about God? Or are you experiencing God for who he is himself? Because when it comes down to a court of law, what you've heard from your Sunday school teachers, while helpful, what you've heard from me, while helpful, what you've heard from others who have given testimony about him, don't pile up to much if you haven't actually heard directly from him. And what I am telling you today is that is possible. Open the word of God and to let him speak to you. To let God tell you what he wants to tell you through the scriptures. I am telling you today that it is possible to sit quietly with God, to repent and try to remove the sins in your lives, to ask for forgiveness for them, and simply to wait to hear what he's going to tell you. I don't know if he'll show up in a whirlwind or not. I don't know if it'll happen every time. But I know that from time to time, God communes with me and I with him. When my heart is clean, when I have been convicted of the things that I've done wrong, when I have truly sought repentance and I'm truly open to him impacting my life, that is when God comes to me and will whisper to me. And that is a time when I know God in the deepest sense. Are you relying on hearsay? Or are you relying on what God tells you directly? Have you sat and waited for him to speak? Or are you, as I do too often, filling my mind and my time with anything to make the silence go away? Are you reading the word and waiting for him to move in your spirit? Are you communicating with him? God is a personal God who wants to have a relationship with us. Seems to be a theme the last few Sundays, doesn't it? It's a two-way street. I with him and him with me. If I spent all my time learning about him but never actually talked with him, that wouldn't make any sense. We talked about that a few Sunday nights ago. All the facts and figures and accounts and photos I might have with someone, if I don't communicate with them, I don't have a relationship. And too often, we've built our relationship upon God based on the gossip of somebody else rather than the very word of God who's wanting to speak to us. My encouragement to all of us is it's not too late. It wasn't for Job. Job went through a horrible trial to learn this firsthand. 
Some of you have been through a horrible trial in your life and have learned this firsthand, haven't you? Others of you have not gone through a horrible trial, but it doesn't mean you can't learn. It doesn't mean you can't give in. It doesn't mean you can't cry out to know him more. And I know I just read this, but I want to read one more time. Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share the sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, Job was written well before Christ physically came to this world and died. And so Job couldn't quite say this. He might have been looking and longing for a savior, but so much of what we read here is reflected in the story of Job that I might count all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that through faith in Christ. You see, that's what Job was trying to do. I'm a good man. This can't be my fault. And then God shows up and says, oh, contrary. You don't know anything. You don't know me. You weren't here when I made this world. You do not understand justice like I do. You do not understand a thing. And Job says... You are correct. I am nothing. So that's what Paul had to do too. Thousands of years later, Paul trying his hardest to earn salvation, to earn righteousness with God by following every single little jot and tittle, that means every little dotted I and cross T of the law. And it all accounted for what? For nothing. Until he finally found God. Until God showed up in a miraculous way on the road to Damascus, blinded him, and said, why are you fighting against me? Paul was converted. Paul was saved. And then here, near the end of his life, what's his final words? That I might know him. If that's the heart cry of Paul, if Job can say, I thought I knew you from what I'd heard about you, but I really didn't, then we should pursue a relationship the same way. That I might know you. Not what I hear from other people. Not the rumors that I've heard. Remember, as we've learned in the book on Sunday nights, working for him, activity for him, it's not the same as a relationship with him. And knowing about him is also not the same as a relationship with him. So here's the challenge and the question. Can you say this? I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Has there been a time in your life, and if you've been on this journey for a while, I mean the Christian journey, then I know what happened to you once. The question is, has it happened again? Maybe you heard the voice of God very clearly when you were saved, and you've struggled since then then go to him, confess, 
be broken for the ways that you've left him. We're always the one who does the leaving. It's never him. And repent. And then give him an opportunity to speak directly to you. Let him show up. Be willing to stand there. Another translation, and I've preached on this before, God shows up and tells him, pull up your pants. Let's get going. And by that, they wore robes, and if they wanted to run and do work, they tied up high around their waist. When he shows up, he tells Job, get ready. That change your life. Are you ready? Do you want to be changed? Do you want God to change your life? Do you want him to take away something from you so that you can get something better in return? I can't answer that for you. Only you can answer that. And even if you're not quite able to fully say yes, let him help you. Let him take you on that journey. Take him by the hand, get to know him, and say, God, I'm not willing to give this up, or I'm not willing to do this, and I know that about myself. Help me. And you know what? He will. Not only do I know that from my personal experience, but many of you do as well.